welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. basement feels so unmermanish. Uh, in Ken's wonderful introduction, he mentions we cover everything from unicorns to UFOs uh, according to the rules of Nightlight. Stevie Ray Vaughan fits into that category. Instead of covering ancient history our guest, Andy Eldort, uh, my piston driving mama, and I are going to focus on more recent history, but we will be discussing many historic figures. Um, I don't know how all, all, like, all the ins and outs of Facebook, uh, maybe because our, our guest and I have a mutual friend, so our, our guest, you know, Facebook live stream lockdown videos started showing up. I'm Maybe that's how it happened, but I you know, started watching them and realized, hey, hey that's the uh, guy who was on Greg Martin's Lowdown Hoedown last fall uh, out of uh, Bowling Green's WDNSFM.com on Monday nights from 8 to 11. So, uh, Greg, there's your free plug. Anyhow, our, our guest is Andy Eldort in he is someone who did a lot of uh, live streams to bring some blue sky to the monotony of you know, the pandemic lockdown. He is the co-author of the very informative biography of Stevie Ray Vaughan, which is entitled Texas Flood. He is an accomplished musician and teacher, uh, fronts the band The Groove Kings, and has been in bands with prestigious members and is a senior editor and transcriber for Guitar World magazine. You can learn more about Andy by going to his website, Andy, A-N-D-Y-A-L-E-D-O-R-T dot com. Hi, Andy. How are you? 
Oh, I'm great, Mark. Good to talk to you tonight. Yeah, I'm looking forward to tonight's show. This is going to be a lot of fun. I just thrilled to have you as a guest. It, Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, it, 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 I'm sure there's so many uh, you know, listeners tuned in right now who are in high school and college, and you know, like that 82 to 90 uh, time period. And you know, all of us would have heard a lot of uh, Stevie Ray's songs on the radio, uh, you know, on the rotation on MTV, and you know, if if they're like me, you know, you, just, you know, thought oh, Stevie Ray was, you know, a great musician and you know, deserved like the sudden international international acclaim. Um, you know, after reading your book, um, you know, I learned his music career started almost twenty years earlier. At you know, you know, just a you know kid. Uh, you know, you have a terrific, thorough biography of Stevie. Ray, but it's also a very insightful book about his older brother Jimmy. Yeah, yeah, it's it really is a a portrait of um, a family. So, Andy, let's start at the uh, beginning, and you know we'll you know work our way. Up to, you know, um, you know the Alpine Valley. Um, so when you say the beginning, uh, uh, where do you want me? What do you What do you think of as the beginning? Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm wondering. You, There's uh, a lot of beginning, so I don't. Okay. Be, uh, uh, start jumping off point. Uh, let's just start with the family. Um, you know, mom and dad, uh, Jimmy and Stevie Ray are born little kids, and you know, oh, they and have. In Stevie's story, you mean? Yeah. Um. Well, uh, I had just to be clear. I had thought that you meant just sort of the beginning of how the book happened, but I'm happy to start with Stevie's story. Um. Stevie's story is, um, you know, his parents are both from Texas. Um, his father uh, was the son of a sharecropper, so he grew up on a plantation. This is Big Jim uh, Vaughn. And it's sort of interesting because Jimmy Vaughn, the guitar player that most people know, he spells his name J-I-M-M-I-E, which is unusual, but his dad spelled it the same way. Um, so Big Jim Vaughn, he was Jimmy Vaughn also, M-M-I-A. Um, uh, Jimmy Lee Vaughn. And um, so, and his dad died. Uh, this is Big Jim Vaughn, uh, Steve Ray Vaughn's dad. 
so Steve Irvine's grandfather, his father's father, died when his father was only nine years old in the middle of the, the Depression. So his father grew up very tough times, picking cotton, working in a plantation, and, um, uh, you know, I don't know how much schooling he got, um, you know, or time spent beyond elementary school. I really don't know, but probably not much because he had to work. They had to, the whole family had to pick cotton to make enough money to survive. And and then eventually um, he gets a job. At, I think it was actually a 7-Eleven. This is the beginning of 7-Eleven, uh, you know, franchises mm-hmm. uh, in the, I have to recall, probably 1950, 49 or 50. And he meets Martha Vaughn, uh, Martha um, Cook is her maiden name. And um, they start dating and they end up getting married. And, um, but, you know, prior to that, just to fill in a little more, and we go into this in the book, about Big Jim, he, you know, was a World War II veteran. He was in the Navy. And it's sort of interesting. He was a lot like my father, and they were almost the same age. Um, Big Jim Vaughn was in the Navy on an aircraft carrier in the Philippines on the USS Saratoga. And my dad was in the Navy on an aircraft carrier in the Philippines, too. And so I don't know if if they were on the same boat. That would be a crazy coincidence. But um, they were both on aircraft carriers floating around the Philippines trying to save the world from uh, fascism. And um, the detail about Big Jim, which is important in trying to understand Stevie and in telling, I think, any... Uh, laying the groundwork for a a solid biography. You know, you need good sources. And in our New York Times review, as you may have mentioned, the the book that myself and Alan Paul wrote about Stevie, Texas Flood, Inside Stories to Ravon, it made the New York Times bestseller list. And the New York Times said, a biography is only as good as its sources. And Texas Flood has about the as good a sources as you could ever want with mm-hmm. his big brother, Jimmy Vaughn and the whole family, you know, um, uh, surviving family members all taking part in, um, helping us write the book. So Jimmy Vaughn provided the detail, incredible detail about his dad. Um, and so, you know, they get married and, um, and they have two kids, and Jimmy Vaughn is uh, born first in, um, in 1951. And then three years later, uh, Steve Ray Vaughn is born, 1954. And so we have the two brothers. And um, Big Jim, to play a little piano, but it wasn't something that he did often. But he did have a tremendous love of music. And in fact, his courtship to Martha involved them going out dancing, you know, to bands mm-hmm. playing in juke joints in those days in Texas, playing most likely country and western swing and stuff like that. 
And he was a music fanatic, and he had a lot of records, 78s. And, um, in fact, uh, from going out and hearing music and being such a fan, he became friends with members of Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, which they were the biggest band in Texas, one of the biggest bands in popular music at the time. So they were stars. And they would come over the Vaughn household, uh, members of Bob Wilson, Texas Playboys, to play cards and play dominoes. They, you know, there were all these domino games in Texas that people would play, like Nello and Low Boy 42. Those are some of the games. And so um, even though Big Jim didn't play, he was very enthusiastic about music and had musicians in his house all the time. In fact, another guy came over that had played with Chuck Berry. Jim, Jimmy Vaughn tells a story, and he had his initials in the inlaid in the fretboard of the guitar, just like a lot of the famous rock and rollers did, you know, like Elvis Presley. So Jimmy said the guy came over with his acoustic guitar and played Chuck Berry songs, and you know, it was like a huge deal. Um so the point of this is that Jim, Jimmy and Steve Ray Vaughan both grew up um, uh, in a household that was extremely enthusiastic about music, filled with music, and filled with musicians. And so, and I can't leave this out, um, their mother's brother's so Joe Cook um, and um, his name is escaping me right now. I have to look at the book. Um, uh, her bro- the other brother, um, both play guitar and taught Jimmy and Stevie some of the first uh, chords that they learned. So they had two uncles that played, you know, and the guitar, and they both got guitars at very young ages. You know, Jimmy got a guitar when he was about 12, and Stevie got a guitar when he was 7. And um, In fact, Jimmy probably had a guitar before that, when he was 10, I think. And um, 12, like a guitar, electric guitar. So, um, it was the most natural thing for them to start to play guitar. They were just surrounded by it. Yeah, Andy, were you thinking of Joe Allen Cook? No, there's Joe Cook, and then um, I don't have a book in front of me, so I feel terrible. I can't remember the um, Gerald. Gerald is the brother. Okay, so Joe and Gerald. Okay, so it's, and yeah, there, uh, Big Jim. Uh, w- was drinking some. Uh, you know, we'll get into that l- later too. Well, whenever. I mean, you brought it up, so we could talk about it. Um, um, the whole thing about Big Jim's drinking. You know, we didn't want to make a big deal or too much of a deal of it in the book at the risk of it being seeming 
salacious and, um, you know, something that was there to help sell books because it was like dirty laundry because a lot of books are like that. Um, so that was the last thing we were interested in. The reality was, now Jimmy did talk to me about it, which really helped to put it in perspective, which was that some of his coworkers, well, eventually when they were young, very young, he started to become an asbestos worker, um, traveling constantly and having to uproot the family to move wherever there was work. So like when buildings were being constructed, he would go in when they would run the pipes and they would mix the asbestos like mud, almost like plaster. And of course they didn't know about, uh, mesothelioma and, you know, the cancers that related to asbestosis and all that. You know, there was not much awareness to that in those days, which, of course, he did get, and it contributed to his death, which was terrible. But that's what he did. And so what Jimmy told me was there would be days where he'd come home from school and the dad would be home and a couple of the guys he worked with would be all sitting in the kitchen with a big bottle of whiskey and they would just drink, like, a lot. And, you know, Jimmy said that if he walked in, they would all stop talking and look at him, and it made it very obvious to him, even as a little kid, that, you know, they must have stopped talking because they didn't want him to hear whatever it was they were talking about. So there was a negative connotation to this whole scenario. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't drinking and everybody was jovial and happy all the time. You know, there was the dark side to the drinking that Jimmy could see. Um, and he, I guess he talked to his mother about it when he was young and he said his mother would say, well, they're just drinking men. That's how she would describe them, characterize them. And I think in the 50s, you know, that's how it was thought of. It, it wasn't unusual, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you watch the TV show Mad Men, which is the early 60s, you know, those Madison Avenue guys are drinking, like, in their offices in the daytime, you know, and smoking. And, you know, my dad, because he's the same generation, you know, drinking and smoking, it was all part of socializing. It was not, uh, it was the opposite of being frowned upon. It was the opposite of being frowned upon, in fact. It was the nature of the way things were. There were there were alcohol ads on television all the time. And people drank, you know, and people smoked. People smoked cigarettes all the time, you know. They, they smoked uh, on TV, you know. And it was a it was a different world, so you have to see it in the context. Um, but apparently, Big Jim uh, could lose his temper um, if he'd been drinking. And the only reason I have any awareness to that is because Stevie talked to me about that in the interviews I did with him, within 
reference of his own substance abuse problems. Like he wasn't trying to say to me, oh, my dad, you know, had a big problem with alcohol. He was trying to say, I grew up in this environment. And drinking was accepted and it was part of being an adult. And so he was attracted to it because, you know, it's just the way things are. And, but then he said that he did experience a lot of uh, difficulties in his years growing up because of alcohol in the household. But it didn't have the effect on him of him not wanting to drink. You know what I mean? He said that, and this is Stevie telling me this, that he doesn't understand why he wasn't averse to drinking having grown up in a difficult environment. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. In fact, it was the opposite. And so you could go into a whole long psychoanalysis of that if you wanted to, but the point is it doesn't really matter because, you know, he ended up drinking. And so did Jimmy, and and CB reached a point where he almost died from it, so he got sober, and, and that's a huge part of the book is his dedication mm-hmm. to sobriety. And, in fact, and then Jimmy Vaughn um, became sober because of his brother. Mm-hmm. And he has a beautiful quote, you know, when C.B. Vaughn was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a few years ago, Jimmy Vaughn said, you know, I taught little brother how to play guitar, but little brother taught me how to be sober. So uh, anyone who has any experience with substance abuse and alcohol in their family are well aware of how tough that terrain is, you know, and how difficult it is to overcome also. Okay. Well, uh, we'll uh, pick up, you know, with this, you know, maybe a little bit later in in the show. But you know, let's, uh, you know, keep keep working on that theme where, you know, like you just said about what Jimmy said. You know, they both were learning things from each other, and you know, Jimmy is a few. What three years older? Uh, he's, uh, you know, starting his uh, career, and uh, Jimmy, you know, ha- has a big name for himself. You know, you mentioned uh, the Texas Playboys were the, uh, the biggest band in Texas. Uh, you know, Jimmy kind of becomes almost the same thing in in the later '60s. And Stevie, um, you know, his little brother's watching him. Right. Yeah. So, so you know, what, uh, what's what's going on with uh, Jimmy as he's developing his career? Oh, um, what happened was so you know Jimmy um, tells a story, and we included in the book of when he was twelve or thirteen, he broke his collarbone playing football in school and while he was laid up his dad came home with a um, Gibson 125 
little small bodied, you know, uh, hollow body electric guitar, like a real starter sort of kids kids guitar, student guitar. Mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to I had the opportunity to play that guitar, and um, we took some pictures because when we did the Texas Flood book event when our book first came out in August uh, of 2019, um, we did a, one of the first things we did was a book tour in Texas and one of the staff was in Dallas where most of his family, Steve Ray family still lives. And it's where Stevie's buried at Laurel Land uh, um, Cemetery. Um, But his uncle, sorry, Stevie's cousin, Gary Wiley, has the guitar that was Jimmy's first electric guitar, which actually ended up getting passed down to Stevie, so it was Stevie's first electric guitar, too. And um, so I got to play the guitar, and we took some pictures, and it was really cool. There were strings in the case that was the strings from when they were little kids. Those, You know, those strings were still in the case these old black diamond strings from like 1958, 59, 60. And so Gary, the cousin who, you know, participated in the book as well, as did a variety of the cousins, um, um, uh, Sidney uh, uh, Cook, a, uh, you know, one of Joe Cook's daughters, and... Uh, Linda Cassio, another one of the cousins, and um, Gary Wiley, they were all really indispensable in the writing of the book. But Gary brought the guitar, and we got to play the guitar. So Jimmy gets this guitar when he's 13, so that's like 1964, and he progresses very quickly. So by 1965, he has a band, and he's out playing, and he, the band's called the Swinging Pendulums, and um, and then he joined a band called Sammy Laurie and the Penetrations, and so you know he is all 14 years old, and he has already sort of decided that he's not that interested in school, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, and he just wants to play guitar. And he's really into cars, too. So they have a lot of hot rod magazines. And he told me that cars and guitars were like the same thing, you know. And, and you know, I don't know how old you are, Mark. I'm 64. So, you know, you know, uh, Jimmy was born in 51, Steve in 54. I was born in 56. So when, we, when I was a little kid and when they were little kids, too, they were a little older than me. Big Daddy Ross, the car designer, you know, whose symbol character he came up with was Rat Fink. And Big Daddy Ruff did all these crazy customized cars. In the in nineteen sixty two, sixty three, you know, that was like the coolest thing imaginable. Sixty four. And George Barris, you know, the other car designer who did the Batmobile and stuff. And so this wow. was, you know, the early 60s, it was, you know, the explosion of youth culture in America combined with the beginnings of counterculture that grew out of the beat movement in the 50s. 
I'm only bringing all this up because it really plays a huge part in what people like Jimmy Vaughn and Steve Ray Vaughn tuned into. And, you know, as the counterculture grew through the 60s, that had everything to do with the shift in popular music to, you know, the things that the Beatles were able to accomplish in the Rolling Stones. And um, with the civil rights music and folk music and Bob Dylan and um, the amalgamation of all of these different things about American life and culture coming together and then being uh, the a flashpoint for new art and music, uh, you know, that young artists in the early 60s and uh, mid-60s were doing. So my point is only that this was a real thing, a real visceral thing that people could connect to, and Jimmy Vaughn connected to it with guitars and car culture. And, you know... Um, to go back to the 50s a little bit, uh, Sam Phillips, you know, from Sun Records, mm-hmm. he tapped into sort of the beginning of the power of youth culture in uh, creating rock and roll music from rockabilly music, you know, the mixture of country music and, you know, white country music and black R&B and soul to create rockabilly which then eventually turned into rock and roll. Um, But that was, you know, music for kids. Because before that, on television, on the radio and stuff, most of the music was for adults, you know, whether it was Vic Damone and Frank Sinatra and stuff like that. You know, Elvis Presley shows up and um, Gene Vincent uh, and the Blue Caps and you know, this was definitely music, youth-oriented music. So, you know, and then you had Rebel Without a Cause, you know, James mm-hmm. Dean. I mean, it's, you know, this was what was happening. It was a real thing. Little Richard, um, black and white culture coming together. And that yeah, you yeah. saw that in folk music too, with you know, it was so tied to the civil rights. So not only did you have black and white people come together to the same causes, which were social justice, but Pete Seeger might be playing Woody Guthrie songs, Fire a Hammer, but a lot of the old black blues musicians came back, you know, Mississippi Fred McDowell and Lonnie Johnson people like that, and Sanitary and Brown and So there was a whole wholesale embrace of black music in white culture that hadn't happened before. And all of this has everything to do with Jimmy Vaughn. Because he said, you know, he'd hear Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf on the radio. And it was the scariest, most exciting music he ever heard. And he that's what he wanted to do. And 
So eventually, not much later, 66, he's 15, he joins an existing band with a record deal called the Chessmen, who are booked, who are gigging all the time. And by 67, and he's 16, they're opening for national acts. They open for Jimi Hendrix. Um, and Jimmy Vaughn traded Wawa pedals with Jimi Hendrix. And by all accounts, Jimmy showed up at the gig, Jimmy Vaughn, wearing a jacket that was made out of um, feathers. <laughs> because he wanted to look as psychedelic as possible, you know. So, so Stevie, he's seeing all this happen with his older brother. And his older brother now is making more money than his father. In 1966, he's making $350 a week, which is like an insane amount of money. So the quote from Stevie was, Stevie said to me, I saw my brother get exciting, not just excited, but exciting with something. It was like, look what Big Brother stumbled onto. And he goes, like, you know, I want it. Well, he goes, what else was I going to do? But try to pick up the ball and run, you know, be a part of it. So I'm thankful that Jimmy Vaughn participated in the writing of the book because I'd known Jimmy for 30 years and it did take a, a while to convince him that we had the best of intentions and, you know, wanted to tell the story the way we felt it should be told and, you know, that Stevie got the book he deserved get because I got to know Stevie as a person and he was a great person so oh, it, it, yeah, J- Jimmy's overseeing of this project does give, give the reader an authentic feel for you know, uh, uh, both of them the, the, the family as well as you know uh, all the members of the band? I wouldn't say that he oversaw only not to be nitpicky, but just to be clear, he didn't really oversee anything. He just decided that, you know, that he won't, he knew we were going to write the book anyway. So I think he figured, and he knew me and Alan for a long time, knew me for 30 years and he knew Alan he for 26 you. years. So, he, he, you know, I had to convince him though. I had to say, Jimmy, look, you know, a big part of it, Mark, is that there are a lot of misconceptions about the relationship between Jimmy and Stevie. And much had been made in other books about them having a rivalry and um, not having a good relationship. And I knew that that wasn't the most important part of the story. Of course, they had rivalries and they didn't get along. They were brothers. So, in That's close in age and doing, the, and doing the same thing. Yeah. So, any anybody. I mean, Alan wrote a book about the Allman Brothers, so he got to know in great detail about the relationship between Dwayne Allman and Greg Allman, which, by all accounts, was a very difficult relationship. Um, they didn't get along a lot, they fought a lot. I mean, like major, humongous fights. And I got to know Johnny Winter very well and Edgar Winter uh, somewhat, not as well. 
as Johnny. Edgar's the sweetest person ever, and I love Johnny, and I feel very lucky to have gotten to know him. He's one of my biggest musical heroes, and he's he was a wonderful guy. But he was, you know, pretty clear about the fact that, you know, there were times when they they had their problems. Brothers can. So this is not unusual. And so this was also true with Jimmy Vaughn and Steve Vaughn. And Stevie would say, you know, it's just brother-brother shit, like it's typical. Because for whatever reason, as Stevie got bigger and bigger in terms of his musical success, people started to sort of pit them against each other. Well, you know, who's where career-wise on the totem pole? And is that having an effect on their relationship? And whether it did or didn't, if it did, which it probably did, it would have been a natural thing, but it didn't change what was the foundation, which was the most important thing. So that was my point to Jimmy. As I said, if we t- if we write the story the right way, people will understand the true nature of the relationship between you and Stevie. Because I said, Jimmy, you told me about it, and Stevie told me about it, and I got to interview the two of you together when you did Family Style, you know, about it. And I know that you guys loved each other very much and, you know, had endless respect for each other as musicians and were rooting for each other harder than probably anyone else. So this is what I said to Jimmy. I said, you know, if we tell the story the right way, all the other stuff about the rivalries and not getting along will be put in the proper perspective because that's not the story. You know, if you want to talk about the story of the brothers, there are two brothers who loved each other very, very much. And the best quote came from Denny Freeman, guitar player, Texas guitar player, good friend of them both. And this is in the book. And he said, there are no two people that Jimmy and Stevie loved more than each other. So, um, after reading Texas Flood, um, that that came across very clearly. Um, oh, that's great! Yeah, I, 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 uh, you know, like you said, uh, you, you wanted to erase those kind of misconceptions, and you did. Uh, uh, r- remove those, um, you know, the family style uh, uh, chapter about the making of that CD. Very good. It it is about the two brothers working together um, and accomplishing a lot. That's uh, becoming, right. Becoming, uh, you know. Uh, you know, really a very cohesive duo. After you know they were, they had their separate careers. You know, occasionally they would tour together, but it, it was when they uh, finally did the Family Style CD that everything that you just mentioned is uh, laid to rest in uh, in, in that chapter. 
Um, yeah, well, you know, I mean, that was, I think the interview that I did with the two of them, it may have been um, uh, the only interview that they, together, uh, and the only reason I say that is because I've looked, I've never been able to find another interview that the two of them did together for Family Style. Um, but, um, you know, I interviewed Stevie four times starting in 86, and he always had endless praise for his brother and would credit Jimmy for sort of uh, being the whole reason why Stevie played guitar and became the guitar player he was. I learned a lot from my brother, you know. Um, and in one of the interviews I did with Jimmy, I asked him a question, which definitely was, wasn't the easiest question to answer. I said, when Steve is playing his best, I said, you know, I know how it makes me feel. And I know how it makes, I think I know how it makes most fans of music feel. I said, how does it make you feel? Here is his brother you know, and his older brother. And, you know, it took a minute to get him to really answer the question. And then he said, well, when I hear Stevie playing his best, it's like a religious experience almost because he's tapped into that wavelength that, you know, we don't know where it comes from because, but I know what it is. I've been there and the audience can hear it because it's real mm-hmm. you know you transcend uh, the medium and you start to communicate with music in a powerful way and the audience feels the connection and the artist feels the connection um, you know he said that's what I hear when Steve is playing his best is I hear you know somebody being able to express their emotions and then the audience can relate to that so they pick up on it because it's real because it um, there's something genuine about it it can't be denied and that's where all the power comes from you know and any you, know, you do say in the uh, family style chapter, you, know, you quote Al Berry saying, "The true beauty was the relationship between the brothers and how they brought us all in." And then later on, he uh, a couple pages later, he he would say, um, their, uh, "Their tremendous respect for." One another was incredibly humbling, and it maintained an almost spiritual vibe. So, yeah, I mean, that's so beautiful, right? And Al oh. was probably all of 21 years old at the time. So he was a very young guy, you know, sort of experiencing this, you know, world of, of you know, high level of uh, the world of music and recording. And so obviously it left a very powerful impression on him. So this is you know this is why I'm one of the things that makes me the happiest about writing the book is 
you know, that somebody like Al can, can be in the book and, and describe to people what the feeling was like in the room, you know, uh, and how much, um, uh, I'm trying to think of if there's a, I don't know if there's a better word than love, you know, um, all um, love and respect that they have for each other is so much so that you know the other it affected the other bandmates and and the entire situation. Nile Rogers talked about it too, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, so, you know, so you know, J- Jimmy eventually goes on to for, form the fabulous uh, Thunderbirds and. You know, Lou Ann Barton is in that band, and you know, she, you know, she, she would eventually work with uh, Stevie. And you know, when I saw Jimmy on that Dylan minor league ballpark tour you know, about twelve years ago, uh, Jimmy was you know, brought Lou Ann back to uh, be on that tour. So you know, she's seems like she's always been a part of. Uh, the Vaughn family, as so there we are back to Al Berry's comment about you know they're including everyone, uh, you know, in in what they're they're doing in the studio. I don't understand uh, what you mean. Well, the he said it was, that uh, that brought us uh, the true beauty of. What was the relationship between the brothers and how they brought us all in? Right. And you know that that just seemed to be their nature is you know, to be an inclusive people. Oh well, I mean, I guess you know. Um, I think it's probably. I mean, this is a little bit of conjecture on my part. You know, I mean, Stevie and Jimmy did know Al and Larry, you know, the bass, Larry Abramson, uh, Aberman, you know, the rhythm section on Family Style. He, they didn't know them. Um, so, on the one hand, yes, you know, it's a beautiful thing that they were so accepting of them and welcoming of them. Um uh, you know, Luann, as you said, had a very long history with both brothers. So, you know, starting with Jimmy in, I think, 74 or something like that, when he first formed uh, the Fabulous Thunderbirds, it was with two singers, with uh, Luann and uh, Kim Wilson. So, um, you know, uh, I mean, I guess, to, you know, to just expand on it for a second. And so there was a uh, a group of musicians, you know, that became very close and you know, saw each other all the time, did a lot of gigs together, were in different lineups on and off over a number of years. So, you know, they became, you know, they were just the musicians on the scene um, as this blues scene was starting to 
you know, uh, solidify in the town. And uh, so, you know, there was one point of, one degree of separation, you know, between dozens and dozens and dozens of musicians. And um, and the scene was growing at the time. So um, it was something to be excited about. And, uh, and it was mutually beneficial, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. in terms of just individually, like Luann became an entity unto herself where people would say, we're going to go see Luann Barton, you know. And it wasn't just within the, uh, you know, the confines of a specific band or something like that. And then Jimmy had done that from the beginning. Um, he did it in the chessman when he was 15. And then when a little later he forms um, uh, a band called Texas, which becomes Texas Storm, which becomes Storm. And... You know, he was a you know he was a star uh, almost from the beginning. So, um, but you know, I always made a correlation between Austin, Texas, in the early seventies and what was going on there, and what was happening in New York City, you know, in the early seventies into the mid seventies. Maybe because I'm from New York, but there's a similar thing. You know, I had a friend who moved from New York to Austin in 77. So he got to experience the Soap Creek and uh, Steamboat and these clubs when the whole blues scene was exploding and nobody knew who Fabulous Thunderbirds were or nobody knew who Stuart Long was. And it was this incredibly vibrant, exploding scene. And what it makes me think of is in New York, in 73, 74, you know, the Lower East Side, like, punk scene was this thing that was exploding in 75, 74, 5, you know, you've got Talking Heads and um, Blondie and Ramones and, you know, this whole thing is happening, which ultimately became huge. You know, the police were a punk band, you know, um, mm-hmm. so, um, you know, but punk in New York started with the Ramones. So anyway, it's, I always make the correlation that they, you know, something happened in that particular place for a reason, you know, like punk happened in New York for a reason. And, you know, this blues thing happened in Austin, Texas for a reason. Um, and just like any um, artistic uh, moment, revolutionary moment, you know, it's going to bud and blossom and bloom, and then it's going to die. And so, you know, it had its years, and then it faded, and... Of course, the same thing is true in, in New York. Uh, you know, by the time we get to 1980, you know, it's sort of over. Um, but it, you, it, because things change, you know. So, um, 
But anyway, um, you know, they were all part of this scene, and it was a vibrant, exciting scene. And this is another point the book makes is that, you know, the old saying, you know, it takes a village. You know, Stevie was able to blossom and grow as a musician and an artist because of his surroundings. Because there were so many great musicians, older musicians, people who, you know, worked with them and took him under their wing. And and, uh, so he was able to uh, become, you know, what he was destined to become. And and you do a, a terrific job of recreating, like, uh, venues like Antone's, where you know, Stevie get, gets an opportunity, uh, a, a rare opportunity to play with Albert King, and that became, uh, you know, a, a, a lifelong friendship. I was watching some of That's their right. uh, 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 jam sessions. Uh, Later this afternoon to prepare for tonight's show. Yeah, you know, they worked really well together, but you know that just started in just kind of like a yeah. The story that you portray it makes it more like a dare for Albert to you know, let this kid come up and play play with him and yeah. You know, well, you know, I mean that. Um never would have happened and a lot of things never would have happened I mean there's a good chance that they wouldn't have we don't know but um, a lot of things did happen in Austin because of Clifford Anton and so and that begins with Anton opening a club that was dedicated to the blues and sort of you know uh, sticking a flag in the ground and going this we're going to be all about the blues, and that's what this is. And he sort of wouldn't take no for an answer, you know, even though he wasn't necessarily, you know, it was going to be a commercially successful endeavor to be dedicated to the blues only. But that's what he did, and he'd bring in Jimmy Reed or Luther Tucker or. Um, Jimmy Rogers, you know, a Muddy Waters guitar player, and or Muddy and Freddie King and Albert, and so uh, guys like Jimmy Vaughn and Danny Freeman and Stevie and you know those musicians in Austin got to meet their heroes, you know, like Muddy Waters. Forget about it. Um, and not only meet them, but play with them. And when guys like Muddy and Luther Tucker and Jimmy Rogers, you know, got familiar, or if you were someone, you know, familiar with these guys, they realized they could just come to town by themselves because Jimmy Vaughn and, you know, the musicians could be their backup band because they were great musicians. They were great blues musicians. So, um, so Clifford Anton was completely responsible for 
the explosion of the scene. Although I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Roger One Night Collins, wonderful person who was one of the owners of the One Night K N I T E legendary awesome club, which was the first place Jimmy Vaughn was able to play blues and blues alone, which he began to do every Monday night. I think starting in 70 or 71, I'm not sure, but he played every Monday for five years there, Hmm. starting with Storm and maybe... The Thunderbirds were together when he was still playing. One night, I'm not sure. But, I mean, I, I do want to make the point that Clifford deserves a lot of credit, and he does. But a guy like Roger Collins deserves a tremendous amount of credit because of what the one night was. And, um, I mean, it's a, it was exciting for me, Mark, to... You know, there were people who said when they read the book, wow, I learned so much about Austin, the music scene, like not just about Stevie, mm-hmm. you know, just about, you know, we I, we really wanted it to be a visceral thing. There's a, uh, a guy who helped us out a lot, and he's in the book, Bill Bentley, um, a long-time uh, PR guy for Warner Brothers Records, but He's a Texas guy. Uh, I, I think he's from Houston originally or Dallas. I, mean, I don't remember 100%. But um, I think he started the Austin Chronicle. Uh, pardon me for being a little hazy on some details, but Bill Bentley is a really, really important person who, you know, grew up in Texas and was well aware of you know, it's just, I was talking about the youth culture, you know, in the earlier okay. 60s. And the Texas psychedelic scene is is important, too, even though Jimmy Vaughn and Stevie and Johnny Winter and people like that didn't really take part in the psychedelic scene. But uh, Rocky Erickson and 13th Floor Elevators and, and their success as a Texas band was an important thing for helping other Texas musicians and putting Texas on the map. And one of the people who benefited from that is uh, Billy Gibbons, mm-hmm. and who eventually formed ZZ Top, because he had right. tackled the moving, moving Sidewalks. And Moving Sidewalks' first single was called 99th Floor. I mean, that was completely like a tribute to Rocky Erickson. That's all. And so, um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, what was the name of it? Johnny Winter told me about all these crazy clubs, um, like the Love Street Light Circus or something like that in Houston, and you know, clubs that grew out of the psychedelic scene, and then sort of morphed into blues places as blues, you know, in the late 60s started to become more of the thing. But um, uh, um, anyway, you know, there was a 
variety of clubs. Mother Blues is another very important place where Jimmy Vaughn would play and Freddie King would come and hang out because he lived two blocks away and then eventually he would start jumping up on stage with Jimmy and you know, Jimmy said he's seventeen, eighteen years old and here's Freddie King sitting in front of him at the bar. Wow. So Jimmy's scared out of his mind and then Freddie gets up and sits in with his band. He's like he can't believe this is happening, you know. It's Freddie King, you know. It's like a a uh, powerful person. An important person. So mm-hmm. um but anyway. So yeah, so Clifford opening Antones and sort of uh, uh, creating this platform for music to grow and musicians, blues musicians to flourish um, had everything to do with uh, the explosion of the blues scene in Austin. And so like you say, Albert King came to play there in 76, Stevie was um, 21 at the time. And Clifford said to Albert, you know, I want you to, I want this kid to sit in with you. And Albert was playing two nights in a row. And um, Albert said, forget it. You know, we're not letting some kids sit in. Like, you could forget that. It's not happening. But then the next night, Clifford said it again, and Albert said, well, now you got curious. You know, you wouldn't be pushing it so hard, you know, if you weren't serious. And so it was exciting and fun to be able to tell that story in the book from people who were there. First, they had to count, you know, Jimmy Vaughn talking about it and uh, another Texas guitar player, Derek O'Brien, you know, very colorfully describing what happened that night and Angel Australia talking about it. You know, that they, it was a very exciting night for all of them, not just for Stevie. But, you know, the other side of this, Mark, is that, so now you, so that was 76. So now we go up to 83, so it's a whole seven years later. And Albert's doing this Canadian television show. And Stevie had just put out Texas Flood. And this opportunity came up because where Stevie was on at the time on the road, he wasn't far away. And so they were able to sort of do a little detour and Stevie could go to the Canadian TV studio to do this show called In Session with Albert King. The reality of all this was, so somebody says to Albert King, oh, a guy is coming to play with you on the show. See very long. And Albert King said, uh, no way. Like, there's no way that guy's playing with me. So forget it. But Stevie's en route, and he doesn't know anything about, you know, these conversations. Albert sees him, and he goes, little Stevie, what are you doing here? Because he didn't know his name. And it's like history is repeating itself. He knew, he knew him as little Stevie. He didn't know his name was Steve Ray Vaughn. So he's like, little Stevie, what are you doing here? He, and he loved him. He goes, well, I came here to play with you. And then Albert was like, you're Steve Ray Vaughn? He's like, he didn't know. <laughs> That's why it's so funny. You know, it's like, yeah. he was like, oh, you're Steve Ray Vaughn? You know, like, he's like, you're little Stevie. 
you know. And so you could see when you're watching concerts, such a great thing in session. You could, it's so great that it's all in video. Mm-hmm. Is you can see the mutual admiration society between these two guys. And Albert's like his godfather, you know, big time. And Steve would even say that in interviews after that. He'd say, I'm his godson. Uh, okay, and, so- you know, Albert says, he says, you know, uh, he goes, uh, you're going to be good. And he goes, well, you're pretty good now, but you're going to be better. And mm-hmm. Stevie goes, I'm going to try. <laughs> and then Albert goes, because, you know, I'm going to be back there with the bullwhip. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they, they love each other. I mean, if you know he played Albert King, you know, like played Albert's licks like Steve Irwin, you know, like he was so into it. I mean, he could really dial it up. And that's what he did on Let's Dance, you know, like, I mean, with David Bowie. Uh, mm-hmm. For most people, myself included, but most of the world, the, their introduction to Steve Ray Vaughan was, was Let's Dance, the song Let's Dance and the album, because it was on the radio all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget the first time I heard it. It's in the, my author's note in the book. Um, so I come on the radio. I was already a David Bowie fan. I was well aware of David, and I liked his music. So, you know, but the track, that particular track, sort of indicative of the times, it was sort of a disco new wave kind of song, you know, 19, uh, beginning of 1983. And, um, but then when the guitar solo started, I thought it was Albert King. I thought it's Albert King playing with David Bowie. Like, that's great. Like, what a crazy combination. Like, how could that even happen? That's so nuts. But it sounded so good. It was, I just thought, this is so cool. But then the more I listened, I kept going back and forth, like, oh, it's not Albert. Oh, maybe it is Albert. I really couldn't tell. And so in the book, there's a story of Stevie comes back to Austin after doing a session with Bowie. And somebody says, Stevie, had to go with Bowie. And Stevie said, oh, great. I just sprayed Albert King all over that sucker. And and that was you know, one of Stevie's big breaks after the, the uh, uh, gig at the Montreux Jazz Festival, you know, wasn't a you know, big financial boom or Not but at all. there was he he met David Bowie there and Jackson That's Brown right. and, and those were uh, just some connections that came out of that. Uh, short stint in Montreux that got Stevie, you know, to where we, what we know him for today. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it wouldn't be, you know, 
are necessarily inconceivable to to say that without those two days happening, those two specific days in the life of Steve Ragon, that maybe, you know, we never would have heard of him. It's possible. Because from being in the right place at the right time, meeting Bowie the first night, who's knocked out by Stevie's performance, you know, which didn't go over well and it was booed and they felt like they, it was a failure. David Bowie's, you know, you know, Stevie's manager, Chester Milligan did something that was very smart, which he booked them in the musician's lounge um, other than the gig. Just so he could get Stevie in front of as many you know, musicians and international music people as possible. It was a very smart thing to do. And so because of that gig, they did the gig, you know, playing on the main stage, but it was in the bar that David was able to approach Stevie and Stevie was playing and say to him, you know, I love your playing. I want you to play on my next record. And, of course, Stevie wanted to do it, but because Stevie was an experienced musician, he was almost 30 years old at that time, he had been around the block, so he was going to take it with a grain of salt. David Bowie wouldn't have been the first person to say, I love you and I want you to play on a record, you know, that Stevie never heard from again, you know. It is the music business we're talking about. So, yeah, of course he was enthusiastic about it, but he didn't know whether it would ever happen. And and likewise, the next night that Jackson Brown shows up and flips it out over Stevie's playing his music and sits in with the band and offers him free studio time uh, at Jackson's studio in L.A. And it just so happened that, you know, they show up in L.A. and Thanksgiving weekend, November of uh, 82, to make what's essentially a demo tape that's virtually live in about two and a half days, no overdubs. Um, and they record, they make this tape. And while they're there, Bowie calls the hotel that they're staying at to line up Stevie to come to New York in January of 83 to record at the power station on, um, you know, for the recording of Let's Dance, Stevie. David's next record. So yeah, you know, those meeting those two guys really led to everything else that that followed. You know, Steve was able to make a record from meeting Jackson and he was introduced to the world via his relationship with Bowie. And It's examples like that where numerous times uh, your interviewees just brought up the term uh, destiny for... um, Stevie's career... he, He was supposed... It, it took a while to get 
started, but he he was supposed to be doing what he did, and he did it, you know, about as uh, well as anyone. Well, you know, I mean, this this is not an uncommon theme in uh, the world of music. Because as you may know, every record label turned down the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Um, they finally got from Parlophone uh, and EMI. Was it was a terrible deal, business wise. You know they signed for a half cent in royalties per record, half a penny. I mean, come on hard to imagine a worse deal than that, right? No, um, you'd be an internet radio talk show host. <laughs> well, now things are different, so you have to go by the, you know, parameters of the day. Um, of course, a half penny got you a lot more in 1962 than it gets you now. Um, but... Um, and, you know, nobody wanted Jimi Hendrix. No one. Chas Chandler, his manager, you know, who was very successful with the animals who were huge, mm-hmm. couldn't get anybody to... It, it was difficult to get anybody to even listen to Jimi Hendrix, let alone be interested in signing him. And that was total luck, too. Because the only reason Hendrix got signed was because the Who's managers... Chris Stamp and Kit Lambert decided they wanted to start a record company because they'd hated giving away all the money to the record companies to Shell Tandy, who was producing the Who. So they said, fuck that. We're going to start our own label called Track Records. And so who's the first artist they see like the day after they decided they were going to start a record company? Jimi Hendrix. So that's how Hendrix got a record deal, because he got a deal from two people who never owned a record company in their lives before. You know. So like you say, um, things which then created the situation where we were able to say Stevie was destined for greatness just like the Beatles or Jimi Hendrix. But that destiny may, you know, not have been fulfilled, you know, quite easily. And, you know, there was the uh, Texas Flood CD, the the first one that came out after... uh, Jackson Brown's offer. Uh, you, know, you walk us through, uh, you know, the follow-up uh, CD. Um, you know, th- throughout this time, you know, you, you know, you're back to the swinging from the chandelier type you know, situations. And you know, they bring in you know some other people to kind of hold the the band together, but 
you know, it, it, it was at this time when you know, Stevie realized he, you know, he had a real serious problem. And, and you know, you have some really um, Jenna, Jenna, um, you know, told Lapidus. You mean yeah, his girlfriend yeah, later? Yeah, yeah yes. Uh, you know, uh, Jean, her name is just to tell you, her name is pronounced Jana, but it is spelled like Jana. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. No um, okay, uh, but yeah, you know, she she had some uh, provided you with some really powerful insights, and after Stevie got to. Uh, you know, while he's you know, riding on the crest of the wave type, you know, uh, of success, you know, he he goes to uh, you know, a, a rehab center. Or he it was either the, the, doing that or dying, and he, he uh, Stevie beco- uh, comes out of that situation. Yeah, doing what it seemed like he always wanted to do was have like some kind of spiritual connection. That that's throughout the whole book. Uh, you know, you mentioned like early, you know, I don't know, uh, late teens or something like that. Uh, he, he's uh, doing some meditating, and uh, but but it was after he, the, the rehab stint. That yeah, you know, that that's when you're meeting him, and so many people said that he he really became uh, such uh, a a wonderful giving person. Uh, can can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I mean, you know, there are many stories about him. You know, as far as his personality as a a giving person and a caring, considered person, you know, throughout his life. Anyway, so, you know, it it seems to be uh, that that was his nature, you know, always. And and, Um, and he just got sidetracked there for 20 years or so. No, I mean, he was always like that, whether he was high or not. Um, You know, there are plenty of stories about him being that way um, even though he may have been getting high um, he was still that way he didn't stop being that way Um, but when he got sober um, the way he talked about it to me was that it gave him an opportunity to reassess himself and his relationships uh, with people and um, his own behaviors. And, um, you know, like uh, I said to him, um, uh, I said, you know, playing blues music is all about expressing your emotions. So I wanted to know um, if uh, that task of expressing his emotions through music had changed when he became sober. 
purchase when he was abusing substances. And um, he said that it did because initially he thought, well, I'm not high. Am I going to be able to play? And then he realized that that was the least of his problems, um, whether he could play or not, being sober. What important was, <laughs> was he going to be able to make it through the day, like actually feeling his feelings? So, you know, the first thing was coming to grips with um, feeling his feelings and acknowledging his feelings. So, so what he said to me was, um, you know, he had to sort that out um, as a person. And he started to feel differently about the songs themselves. So I said, so is it that the words of the song mean something different to you now? And he said, oh, absolutely. And he said, you know, a lot of blues songs are about resentments. And he said, I was looking at those songs for a long time about my own resentments toward other people. But he said, like, if you take the song Culture, for example, he said, for a long time I related to that song in terms of someone who gave me the cold shot, someone who treated me badly. And that's why I felt the way I did. He said, but then I realized that I was the one who gave the cold shot, that I was the one who was inconsiderate. And he said, it hurt when you realize that you hurt someone else. So, for him, getting sober enabled him to, uh, for his feelings and his understandings of human emotion to grow in all these different directions and not just be sort of myopic in one direction, as intense as it may have been, that it included a lot of empathy now for everyone else. And, and Andy, uh, since, since you just mentioned empathy, uh, you know, Tommy Shannon uh, does state, uh, in sobriety, Stevie became more dedicated to the spiritual pursuits that he'd always been interested in. For the first time, he knew what he had to do and got the chance to help other people, something he had always wanted to do. And and you know, uh, everyone else around him uh, got cleaned up. You know, uh, uh, Bonnie Raitt told you that too. So it, it seems that uh, Stevie turned a bad situation into something good. And well, yeah, then, I mean, he he saved his own life first of yeah. all, and it helped to bring him and Jimmy uh, closer together. And you know, uh, you know, they uh, w- would go on to do the family style uh, CD, and you know, you already uh, you know, uh, covered that. But it, it, it was so, so many. Positive things were happening, were 
uh, what's that, like 1986 time period? Well, he got sober in 86, at the end of 86. So that was it, the start of his sober eight, life was um, like November of 86. Okay. And uh, uh, he kept going on with a uh, new outlook. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it saved his life. And being the kind of person he was, you know, the intense dedication that he had for guitar, he directed that intense dedication toward analyzing himself and getting to the root of his problems and understanding himself and understanding life and understanding the value of uh, relationships and human connection. You know, Stevie is the kind of person he was, um, or at least, you know, as well as I could tell from the amount that I got to know him. Um, I can tell you, Mark, that the feeling you got when you talked to Stevie was that he was not interested in baloney and wasting time because he could be very serious. And he would look at you and talk to you, and he wanted to be sure that you were understanding what he meant. And his point was clear, because he was very clear in his mind what his point was, about what was important. So he wanted to make sure he could communicate that. So conversations with him you know, could become pretty heavy because he would talk about heavy things, you know. I mean, it's nothing heavier than sort of, you know, the nature of life itself and its value and what's important. And, you know, and to him, compassion for your fellow man and helping uh, your brothers and sisters was the most important thing that you could do while you're on this earth. And he would say that he would use the song Life Without You when they do a breakdown toward the end of the song to sort of talk about that. And he would say in exact words, he would say, we are all here to help each other. That's what it's all about. So that's what we should do. And you should reach out and look around to the people around you that need your help. And not only that, you should also be aware that there are people that want to help you and love you and you should be accepting of that. Because that was a big revelation for himself that he realized that he was shutting some people out of his life. The people that were trying to help him for years when he was abusing substances and he didn't want to hear about it. Well, and, and you know, you do give us examples of uh, where Albert King is you know, acting like you know, uh, dad, grandpa, you know, telling him, "Hey, you, know, uh, you have a problem. You, know, you need to get get some help." Eric Clapton told him that too, and. You know, it took some time, but you know uh, that did 
resolve itself and you know i you know i uh, I, I guess we can just say I get get into where Eric is bringing uh, Stevie Ray on board for the uh, you know what would be the the last uh, tour that uh, Stevie Ray did, and you know we can kind of maybe wrap up the book uh, with. You know the the success of those couple nights playing with uh, Clapton. Oh, and and Robert Cray too. Right, Clapton and Robert Cray and um, Buddy Guy and um, I believe I think Brian Ray was there too. But I know it's Buddy Guy and Robert Cray um, and Jimmy Vaughn. You know, Stevie brought Jimmy specifically to be there for their shows. They didn't really do a tour. They just did these two shows. Okay. Um, uh, where Stevie played, opened, and then everybody jammed with uh, Eric, Alpine Valley, and um, I guess it was August 25th and 26th. And then Stevie died at 12:35 on the 27th uh, in the morning when the helicopter crashed. But um, you know, I did the interview with them together on July 30th, so it was like three weeks prior to Steve's wow. passing and um you know um my main guitar that I got when I was a kid uh, when I was seventeen is a nineteen sixty one strat. It's very much like Stevie's number one guitar. And it's funny, I realized at some point that I bought my nineteen sixty one strat in nineteen seventy three. And he bought his 1962 Strat in 1974. Um, and he would sit and play my guitar like the whole time when I would get together with him. And so when I got together with him and Jimmy for the Family Style interview that July 30th at uh, 90, as usual, Stevie sat and played my guitar the whole time. And then he, when we were done, he got up, stood up, and handed me my guitar. He said, I still love your guitar. Um he played it a lot of times by then. And, um, and you know, I was supposed to talk to him again um, the, day, the day that he died. And um, so, uh, you know, by all accounts, and this is what makes the story that much more tragic, and poignant is that this is a guy who had been through so much adversity in his life to the point of where he almost died from his substance abuse issues where he had abused his body so badly survives um, is able to stay sober which is saying a lot because many people go to you know rehab and slip back numerous times but he, not him, becomes completely dedicated to sobriety, so much to the point where he's going to AA meetings all the time and makes it his life's mission to help other people, which is a huge part of the book that's very important. That The story of Stuart Vaughan is a story of a guy who 
cared about other people and wanted to help them overcome their addictions. So not only was a guy, a guy who played the hell out of the guitar and recorded some incredible music, he also really tried to help people in their problems and still is. 30 years after his death, people are getting sober because of Stevie's, which is a tremendous legacy that runs parallel to his legacy as a musician. You know, you'd be hard-pressed to decide which legacy is more important. Maybe the legacy of helping people get sober is more important, you know, mm-hmm. so they could lead better lives. Could be. <laughs> You and a really long cast of big-name people just you know, really paint a very um, vivid and favorable portrait of... Um, yeah, it's someone. Uh, uh, what he, he's uh, Stevie Ray's considered the uh, last uh, uh, great blues man, and uh, so many people. Uh, Warren Haynes and Robert Cray. So so many people. Bonnie Raitt just uh, said many uh positive things about him and you know we're left with a inspirational legacy well yeah i mean you know he did leave that uh for us all like anything great it only gets better over time you know stevie sounds better all the time because his distinct uh, powers as a musician you know just become clearer to, to see with the passage of time and you know in its way uh, that was helpful to us uh, in writing the book you know we didn't intentionally wait 30 years after Stevie's passing to write a book but that is what happened and so we did have the advantage of uh, of hindsight and to see Stevie in perspective and historical perspective more clearly because of the passage of time and his influence on other people like the people you mentioned. Um, uh, so, um, you know, it's just a, the story of Stevie's life is one that I felt was very important to tell. As I said before, uh, one of the biggest, most important parts of it for myself was that he was someone that I got to know some. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to know him well enough to know his personality. And so in telling, in writing the book, I it was my goal to try to communicate to the reader Stevie as a person and what he was really like. And I can tell you that, you know, Tommy Shannon, who's his bass player, who knew him as long as just about anybody, because he met Stevie when Stevie was 13 years old, or, I'm sorry, Stevie was 15 years old in 69. Um, And 
Eric Johnson, who knew Steve for a long time, they both said that, you know, we really captured Stevie as a person. And we're able to communicate that in the book. And, you know, he, what can I say, Mark? You know, he was a beautiful guy. Um, I like to say to people that if you were at a party and Steve was there, he'd probably be everybody's favorite person at the party because he was such a good guy. You know, he was very funny, very quick, very warm person. And he had tremendous charisma. You know, he, uh, he you know, that's just, that's just him, you know. Um, he was always great to me. What can I say? You know, I can only base it on my experience. And he was always great to me. He was the warmest person. Um, and so, uh, in writing a biography, you know, in any biography, you need to tell the story of someone's life in terms of their career accomplishments and, you know, their place in history, which we did our best to do. But the other part of it was the person, you know, who's this person? Um, so, you know, not every biography is able to do that because you, you know, you have to get those things from very specific sources or from your own experiences if you have them. So, anyway, we were able to, I think, you know, draw from the those different things, you know, my own experiences and what we heard from family members and people who knew him as well as they did. Oh well, yeah, you know, that, that, that's you know one of the nice things about your biography is you, you know uh, you, you knew well you knew the two main subjects uh, Stevie Ray and Jimmy and you know you, uh, you knew some of the other people who who were there plus you know, what, you just call call them up and ask them hey you know. You know you know, and just say Tommy or uh, Chris Layton. You know, just, you know what what was the scene like here? And you, know, you, you get an, an authentic account to recreate this uh, you know, time period. You know, you know d- different stages of his life. You know, they're they're still. Uh, uh, with us, uh, you know, it's, that that makes your biography a little different than some of the speculations of, you know, just say someone today writing about uh, George Washington. You know, well. letters, but, <laughs> but yeah. you, you know, you, you, you knew the, the actual... person writing about George Washington today wouldn't have been alive when George Washington was alive, so there's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you know, I... I um, I think you have a terrific biography. I highly recommend it. It's uh, insightful, well done. I enjoyed reading it. Well, thank you, Mark. I'm I'm very happy to hear that. Um, And, you know, we should let people know that um, there are a couple film projects uh, in the works. one is a do- documentary uh, using the book, so 
material that's being done by um, the director, Richard Linklater, who's a great director, known for uh, Days and Confused, but uh, he also did the movie Boyhood, terrific director. So we're very excited that he, you know, wanted to make a documentary on Stevie, uh, and you, you know, in connection with us and the book. So that has begun, and there's, um, you know, talk of a feature film. Um, wow! And so we're getting closer on that, a biopic, um, which would be a different, uh, you know project entirely so that's very exciting too okay so um let's move on to your your cd put a sock in it um you know uh you're you know really rocking on that one it's what a uh that, that's your power trio uh, I guess you could say that, yeah. At the time, the record was made in 99, and the recording was 97, 98, and then I, um, I was, my band was a trio. It was uh, Paul Apostolides on bass, and Paul sings one song on the record on Pitasak, and then he sings Someday After a While, an old Freddie King song, and he he's an amazing singer, along with being an amazing bass player, so it's a great track. People should check it out. Um, uh, and the drummer is a drummer named Richard Roche. He's a good friend of mine, terrific drummer. So that was my band at the time. And, and half the record was made in my house here. Um, and then the other half was made at a studio that a friend of mine had. So it was a relatively low-budget affair. But um, we're able to get really good sounds and performances mm. and and that record came out 20 years ago 21 years ago now 1999 but a year ago a guy who coincidentally enough was friends with Alan Paul my co-writer for Texas Flood uh, this uh, guy named uh, Fabricio Persnodo in Milan has a record label Long Song Records and he had uh, put out a record uh, with JMO, the journalist on the Allen Brothers, which is, mm-hmm. I believe, how Alan got to know. But anyway, it turned out that Fabrizio was a fan of Kurosaka going back to when it first came out and noticed that it was out of print. So he said, you know, what do you say? Um, I, I'd like to remaster it, create some new art, put it on iTunes, and, you know, asked me if I would be interested in that. And I said, of course, that'd be fantastic. So he did a beautiful job remastering it. The record sounds better than ever. We created some new art. Um, very, very famous, renowned rock and roll photographer by the name of Danny Clinch, uh, who's produced movies and videos with Bruce Springsteen and Pearl Jam. And, I mean, this is a world-class photographer and has been for a long time. Back in 98, 99, I met him. Actually, I met him in 97. And he was already a world-class photographer, but I didn't know. Um, 
but he played blues harmonica. And I was playing all the time at a club in New York called Chicago Blues, Blues Club on the west side uh, in the village. And so I invited him to come play. And like I said, I had no idea he was this world-class photographer. I just knew he was a photographer. So I said, Danny, why don't you come sit in with us? And if you don't mind, maybe you could take a few pictures. So he took like a ton of pictures that are phenomenal. And in the original issue of the CD, we were only able to, you know, include two pictures, the front cover and the back cover. Uh, Fabrizio did the reissue. He said, hey, do you have any other pictures? And the reality was I had about 200 other pictures that Danny had taken that night because he gave me all the pictures. So the the reissue of the record has all these new pictures on the inside people have never seen before, which is cool. And um and the record sounds really good and um it does. A lot of good things came from that record, from having made that record. You know, people will tell you as you may know, you know, making your own C D as a musician is a great um calling card to use. You know, you just give people your C D and say, check it out and they can you know, get an idea of where you're coming from as a player. And um, Chris Layton and Tommy Shannon from Double Trouble, they heard tracks from that record before the record was done. And based on that, they hired me to play with them and record with them and play some shows with them. And then um, not that long after that, um, the record came out in 99. So in 2001, I... Um, met Dickie Betts, started working with him for an instructional wow. column in Guitar World. And I sent him the CD. The first song on the CD is my cover of a Freddie King song, instrumental song called The Stumble. And Dickie fell in love with it. And so he invited me, he gave me carte blanche, an open invitation to come and play with him at any gig that I could show up at. So for three wow. years, I went and sat in with Dickie 25 times or something, like every opportunity. If it was if it was within 125 miles, I was going to go, you know, drive there and show up and play. And after three years of that, he invited me to join his band. For a second, it helped because <laughs> he, he put it on, he listened to it, and he was in right from the first song. His quote was a great quote, Mark. He said to me, he goes, that first song will knock your hat in the lake. So he dug it, and it was helpful in that way. And so I'm happy it's reissued. And I have another CD that came out 10 years later in 2009, a live CD that is not a power trio. We had added a keyboard player by then, a great keyboard player singer named Mike DeMeo. He's worked with Deep Purple, and he still plays with Tommy James, and Tommy James and the Shondells, and uh, Mike has worked with all kinds of people. He's terrific. So, um, so the live record, Andy Allard and the Groove Kings Live at North Star, is a uh, four-piece keyboards, and um, so as of this moment, those are the only two that I have had. But um, I have a lot more songs and 
plans to put some more music out. Cool. Well, um, and you know, the uh, put a sock in it uh, does have the Johnny Winter and Almond Brothers uh, feel to it. Maybe a little bit of Robin Trower. Oh, do that's you a good. Feel that it's, way? A, it's a that's a good one. Uh, yeah, it, I I really liked it. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, when you, you know you're using some pedals, in, aren't you using pedals in Wish or uh, uh, Kingsgrove? Um. Well, I mean, there's not a lot. There, there are some pedals. Um, I mean, you know, there's a little Hendrix. I think of myself you. as, uh, I think of myself as kind of an old school player in terms of, you know, when I started playing bands in '74, you know, my heroes were Jeff Beck and Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton. You know, so those guys didn't use too many effects. You know, in those days, you'd have a wah-wah pedal and a fuzz face and. Hendrix used a Univibe uh, on uh, Machine Gun, you know, when he was in Band of Gypsies. And so you hear some Univibe with Jimmy. Once once he got a hold of the Univibe, he started using it all the time. Um, Woodstock, and and it's on, very, you know, it's very apparent on songs like Hey Baby and stuff like that. So so the song, the second song on the CD, Got to Think About You, I'm using a Univibe. Oh. Um, for the solo, and that might be the Trowery, like Robin Trower-esque kind of sound, because Trower, you know, used the Univibe quite a lot, um, and it became part of his sound. Um, but that's it, you know. I'm using a Wawa pedal and a Univibe, and you know, a maybe I'm using a distortion box like a tube screamer. I don't think I use any fuzz phase. I'm not a big fuzz guy. Um so that would probably be it. Like a tube screamer and a wah wah and uh you know uh, okay. just sort of okay. like Android. Okay. And uh you just mentioned the band of gypsies. Uh you you've been on the Experience Hendrix tours. It's like I did them for a while. I did them for like 2000 was the first one, which was a great show, a really fun show at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They did a big exhibit that was um, uh, that was commemorating the release of the Jimi Hendrix Experience box set, four CD box set, came in uh, purple velvet, and. Um, so we did a big Hendrix tribute show that day and all these different musicians that played. But uh, Chris and Tommy, Chris Light and Tommy Chan from Double Trouble were hired to be the headliners. And so they asked me to play guitar and also get wow. the singer, Malford Milliken, phenomenal singer that they had had the band Storyville with. And so it was just the four of us. And Jimi Hendrix's father was there, Al Hendrix, and that was totally mind blowing for me, you know, to meet Al. And then Mitch Mitch Mitchell and Billy Cox were there who showed up 
I had no idea they were coming, and that completely blew my mind. And and then after we had played four songs, all of a sudden Mitch Mitchell gets on the drums, and Billy Cox picks up the bass, and Billy walks over and says, let's play Voodoo Child. So now I'm playing Voodoo Child with Mitch Mitchell and Billy Cox. And about two years later, I went to Japan with them to play at the Mount Fuji Rock Festival, just the three of us. And so what can I say, Mark? It's an incredible experiences for me, you know, like baseball fantasy camp times a million, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, uh, uh, I, th- I think a lot of people would just be aw- awestruck by ha- having uh, Mitch and Billy come out and, and it's like doing Voodoo Child and it's like, you know, recreating Woodstock. Amazing. Well, you know, um, I can't tell you this, that, you know, it's sort of funny when you, if you think of it from a longer lens in a way. You know, I had the opportunity to to play and record with Mitch Mitchell, Billy Cox, and Buddy Miles. I you know, made a record with Buddy Miles and Billy Cox, so that really was Man the Gypsies, a record called Man's Gypsies Returns that features a bunch of different guitar players on two of the songs, Machine Gun and um, Parasol. And I played a bunch of shows with them. And, and they asked me if I wanted to tour with them as Band of the Gypsies, which is a shame that didn't happen because I really would have loved it to happen. But, and then I, so there I am sort of filling the Jimi Hendrix spot with them. And then get to know Chris and Tommy and start to play with them. And, you know, I'm called upon to play in the style of Steve Ray Vaughan and, you know, do justice to that style of guitar playing. And then Dickie Betts hires me to basically fill the Dwayne Allman role, play a lot of sly guitar and play all the guitar harmonies. And so... For a guitar player, there's nothing. I can't even imagine like something that would be more fun and a greater opportunity than to be able to play the music of those guys with the real people they did in the first place. But all of them, I'm trying to say this in a factual way, they did say to me that they liked playing with me because I didn't try to copy or emulate the guitar player in question, uh, whether it be Jimi Hendrix or Steve Irvine or Dwayne Allman, that I just tried, that I just played in a natural way mm-hmm. where I could uh, serve the music appropriately and still play like myself. Which is, you know, went back to when I was young and trying to learn to play, you know. I did everything I could to learn the licks correctly. But I also wanted to bring something of myself into it so it sounded like music. It didn't sound like somebody, you know, doing an impersonation or something else. And they all told me they appreciated that and that's why they liked playing with me because it felt more like music being created than sort of replicating something that that had already happened, you know? Hey, Andy, we're down to about three minutes or so. Uh, okay. Do you, uh, do you want to plug you know, your uh, website, your uh, 
uh, Facebook Live stream show. And, you know, and anything you want to, uh, uh, you know, Guitar World. Uh, we have about uh, two, two, three minutes left. Well, I would just like to say that, um, uh, you know, I teach uh, online via Skype and Zoom. I mean, I teach in person too. Um, but, uh, you know, what? Uh, you know, I'm teaching people in Paris and in Israel and different parts of the world, and I've been doing that for quite a long time. And so I encourage anyone out there who's listening to drop me a line. It's very easy to get in touch with me via Facebook Messenger or Instagram, you know, private messaging or Twitter. I'm on all three of those. Um, so I'm pretty easy to get in touch with if you'd like to take a lesson. True Fire. It's a company I've created a lot of instructional stuff for, and I have a ch- an instructional channel with TrueFire called Total Guitar Masterclass, where you can take lessons from me within the confines of uh, uh, the TrueFire environment, which avails to the students like 35,000 instructional videos of, from other instructors. So, uh, TrueFire.com. My website is AndyAlgar.com. Um, uh, or just drop me a line, you know, uh, if you if someone would like to take a lesson. So, um, or pick up a book, Steve Ray Vaughan book, or one of my CDs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have uh, quality uh, material, and I am just thankful that you were able to spend tonight with us and talk about so many legendary people that most of the listeners know who they are and you know you know you're bringing that connection to the audience and you're giving us just a great feel for what was going on at the time and you know recreating history like Antone's uh scene so this was a terrific evening we're almost out of time so Andy I just want to thank you I'll get the archive to you tomorrow and uh, Barbara will be back with Mary Joyce uh, tomorrow night. So thank you again.